Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. morning. You know, there comes a point in every great story or movie where it seems like everything's going right and all is finally good. Stories have this common shape or arc to them. They're known for this. They all have the same shape typically. First of all, we see that things aren't great at the beginning and perhaps they're getting worse. Think of almost every superhero movie that you've ever seen. Batman, Superman, Avengers, X-Men, etc. Or think of Charles Dickens' classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities, which begins with the immortal lines, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. But then secondly, a change occurs. Something happens. A hero arises, a quest is begun, a budding romance happens, and life is starting to look good again. Think of Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. Think of William Wallace in Braveheart, or Frodo in the Fellowship Fellowship of the Ring in Lord of the Rings. And then third, we find that, in fact, things improve so much that it seems as if victory is near. In fact, it's inevitable. It's going to happen really soon. Evil will be vanquished. Life will be turned around. Perhaps marriage is on the cards. You name the positive outcome in the story. Think of Cinderella when she gets the ball and she dances with the prince and she is swept off her feet, or perhaps rather he is swept off his feet. Or this could possibly be every romantic comedy you have ever seen when all the tension that has existed between the couple is released after that first kiss and it seems that they will live happily ever after. But, well, we'll get to the but later. As our service began today, and I read the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we had reached this point in the story arc of Jesus' life here on earth. Think about it. The issue at the beginning, the very beginning, is the people of Israel are stuck. They have been stuck for hundreds of years, and in fact, things are getting worse. They are oppressed by the Romans, and they've been oppressed by many people, and they have their own bad rulers too. But then, step two, a glimmer of hope. A hope, a new hope dawns perhaps. A baby is born, fulfilling certain prophecies. And this baby becomes a man who can do some pretty unique and amazing things. And he speaks with wisdom and authority like no one else. And he's challenging the corruption of the culture around him. And it seems like there is nothing that they can do to stop him. It even seems that he's claiming to be the promised one, the Messiah, the Son of Man and Son of God. And now, well, he's planning to do something so audacious that this must be the moment, right? This is when it's going to happen. The moment when everything changes, when wrong is made right, when evil is crushed, and all is made good, and the world changes forever. And so we read in Mark chapter 11, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. 
Jesus is planning his grand entrance into Jerusalem. To get to this point, he's been on a really long journey. He's been journeying for a long while. He's been to over 35 different destinations, now culminating in this carefully planned, carefully timed arrival in Jerusalem at the time of Passover, a time when thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims from all over Israel and beyond would have come to Jerusalem to celebrate each and every year. And up until this point, he's been keeping a fairly low profile, at least trying to. And he's cautioning people not to tell others about what he's done or who he is, deliberately avoiding public scenes. But now, well, now that approach is gone. It's gone. And what we have here is the only time in his ministry when Jesus actually plans and promotes a public demonstration. Yes, on Palm Sunday, Jesus presents his claim to be the Messiah. He introduces his credentials. He orchestrates events that fulfill the scriptures. He calls attention to himself and challenges the religious establishment. And while we tend to think of Palm Sunday as a day of celebration, waving our palm branches or perhaps just wiggling them a little bit maybe, singing our songs of praise, you know, we think of it that way. The thing is that after the confetti settles, what are we left with? Is the king on his throne? Do we all live happily ever after? Not really. The reality is that Palm Sunday is a declaration of war, not a day of celebration. The king throws down his gauntlet and he pushes for a confrontation. Palm Sunday is a day when expectations clash head on. The king is coming and he's going to make changes. But in order for this to happen, he has to carefully orchestrate the details. And so he gives two of his disciples, we don't know which two, very specific instructions about what they need to do to help this public demonstration go off without a hitch. At a particular place, Bethphage or Bethany, they'll find a particular animal, an unridden colt, and there to say particular words to those who might try and stop them. The Lord has need of it. Now, why a cult and why one that's never been ridden? Well, it's a cult because over 500 years ago, the Jewish prophet Zechariah had uh, prophesied that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem riding on the foal of a donkey, a cult. Listen to these words from Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of of a donkey. Jesus is consciously fulfilling this prophecy to the letter. And in fact, he is exceeding it because he chose a cult upon which no one had ever ridden, which was because in biblical culture and in ancient culture in general, an animal devoted to a sacred task should be one that had not been put to ordinary use. And what a sacred task this is. This animal will carry the Messiah, God himself. How do we know this? Well, the Greek word for, the, for Lord is kurios, kurios, a title in scripture given to God or to the Messiah. So it's no wonder then, as we'll see next, the people who see the disciples taking the cult are so compliant. Verses four through six, and they went away and found a cult tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the cult? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Moving on, we see that for once, the disciples, Jesus' disciples, actually do what he says. 
because they follow God's plan, because they do this and they don't follow their own plan, things work out as they should. Man, there's a whole sermon in just that thought, right? (laughs) Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is a verse I've memorized, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. But how hard it is to live this way, even for the most committed of believers. Well, they bring this colt to Jesus, and he mounts the animal. And then the parade begins, verses 8 through 10. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, why do they lay down palm branches and cloaks? Well, it could just be because these were the things that were close at hand, but the cloaks were more likely meant to be a sign of reverence for their newfound king. Only royalty usually got this kind of treatment. And the palm branches were likely because of their nationalistic desire to be delivered. You see, when Simon Maccabeus delivered Jerusalem 150 years prior to this day, delivering them from Syrian rule, it was celebrated with praise and with palm branches and musical instruments. And so the palm frond was not just this pretty piece of um, a plant they could wave around. The palm frond was a symbol of revolt or even revolution. Remember also the timing of this event. The triumphal entry takes place at the beginning of Passover week, which recalls the Jewish people's liberation from Egyptian slavery. Couple this with the unridden cult, the cloaks and the palm branches, and it seems likely that the crowd is anticipating the messianic liberation from Rome's oppression. But add to this the cry of Hosanna that the people shout out as Jesus descends down the Mount of Olives and enters into Jerusalem. And then the chance, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And we become certain the Hebrew word Hosanna mixes exuberant praise to God with the prayer that God will save his people and do so right away. And the mention of David is a reminder of the king who built Jerusalem and of whose line the Messiah would come from. The crowd are on the right track. And Jesus is throwing down the gauntlet to the authorities of the capital city. And so Jesus tolerates this brief period of misguided celebration in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, but with the certainty that nothing is going to obstruct the divinely ordained death of the Messiah. You see, the claims of the disciple are ultimately true, but it won't be Rome that's defeated. It will be Satan, sin, and death. Quickly, in verse 11, Jesus moves on to the temple and takes a look around, not as a pilgrim, but as the sovereign Lord who will suddenly come to his temple, Malachi 3.1. He looks around this center of Jewish religious life to see if it's fulfilling its purpose of leading people to true worship of God. And as the stories soon after reveal, he clearly sees that it is not, which must have been simply further confirmation that he was on the right path. And then he withdraws with the disciples a short distance outside Jerusalem, just a couple of miles to Bethany, probably staying with their friends Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And this is where the story arc turns. Remember, we had a problem. Things started to change. It looks like victory is going to happen. 
But then, like in most stories, an unpredicted twist occurs. Maybe a main character dies. Perhaps a new weapon is revealed. Or the clock strikes midnight. Or maybe the smitten couple discover some secret they didn't know about their beloved. And Palm Sunday quickly becomes Good Friday. And Jesus is betrayed by one of his own disciples before experiencing a rigged trial, the rejection of previously adoring crowds, and then being nailed to a cross on Calvary's hill, abandoned by all but a handful of women, as he hangs there dying in excruciating physical pain and even more painful spiritual separation from his father as the weight of the world's sin, past, present, and future, rests upon his shoulders. The king is dead. The king is dead. The hero of Palm Sunday has become the has-been of Good Friday. From cries of Hosanna to shouts of crucify him, crucify him. And the question I'm left wondering is, would I have done the same? Would I have done the same? Would I have turned my back on him so quickly? From devotion to denial, from acclamation to condemnation, from commitment to cowardice. Not me, Lord. <laughs> even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Even if, you have, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. At least that's what Peter said before he denied Jesus three times and fled weeping into the night. And you know, friends, if I'm honest, I do it every single day. Every day. I begin with the best of intentions, reading his word, praying to him. But by the end of the day, I'm aware of all the times that I have turned my back on him in small ways or in larger ways. And you know, the temptation knowing this would be to despair. But you know, I know something about this gospel story. Like all good stories and all great movies, there is, of course, one more twist to come. It may be Good Friday, but Easter Day is coming. We might be at the 11th hour now, but this rescue plan is not yet completed. God's grace is so much greater than our failings. His love is so much deeper than our sin. And we may feel a million miles away from him, but he is still closer than our skin. doesn't matter what we've done. His rescue plan will make it possible for us to be forgiven and fully restored. So if you're feeling the despair of Good Friday in your life, hold on. Your heart may be crushed, but hope is nearby. Your mind may be in turmoil, but peace is close at hand. And your soul may be weary, but salvation's on the way. All is not lost. The grace of Easter is coming, and you are invited to experience all the love it brings. The hero will return. The final battle will be won. The relationship will be restored and all's well that ends well. And all those who die with Christ on Good Friday will be raised again on Easter and live with him forever. The greatest story ever told, like a lot of great stories, is to be continued. Amen.